Today will be a little more of a background study in the book of Romans and uh, bringing you some things about the book of Romans. I think that'll be important to understand as we go forward here. But in Romans chapter 12, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so that should be what's on our heart today. Every person here should have it within the heart to say, Lord, I want to be within your will. I want to do your will for my life. And if you have that in your heart, then all you need to do is understand how to achieve that, how to get to that place. And that's what this passage really is talking about. This is how it happens. And I'll be talking about that. I don't know if I'll get particular to this uh, topic this morning, but I'm going to lay down some things that will help get to that as we go through this. So the book of Romans will be a study of, of great depth. In fact, there's doctrinal things in here that I think will bless you like you've never been blessed before. Amen. Such important things that, that's been written in this book. And as I, was been, and as I was praying and considering the direction that we need to go, I really believe this is what the Lord wants for us. You know, like we can, we can continue to go through motions. We can continue to be religious. We can even try to be a good Baptist, a good Christian, and, and do Christian things. But that's not enough. We got to want the will of God for our life. We have to want to change. We have to want God to do something in our life to the point where by the time this, this month happens next year in 2024, you look back at the prior year and say, you know, I don't even recognize who I was in January of 2023. That God has changed my life. You know what? And it's not something that you're going to say to people, hey, look, I've changed. In fact, this is what's going to happen. People will come to you and they'll say, wow, God's doing a good work in your life. And you'll say, huh? <laughs> you know, it'll, it'll almost be like you don't get it. Because the transformation process is an automatic thing that takes place as you give yourself to the changing of your mind, according to scripture. I always tell people, you got a lot of brain cells up there. And every one of those cells has taken on information throughout your life. And you have to challenge every bit of information that you've ever received. And you have to bring it to the light of God's word. And if it's a wrong piece of information, you've got to let the Holy Spirit pluck it out and put the right information in. That's mind renewal. And so pluck it out, put it in. <laughs> pluck it out, put it in. And that's why you can't have the the, the message of change without having a positive and a negative aspect to it. Preachers always saying, don't do this, don't go there, don't, don't be a part of that. Well, that's a part of the plucking out. And then they're saying, do this and do that. Well, that's a part of putting in. You see, if you don't have both of those parts going on in your life, you're not going to change. Amen? So if you want to keep doing everything you want to do, everything you've ever done, and you wanna, then you want to be a good Christian, it's not going to happen. Your life has to transform. There has to be a metamorphosis taking place where there was once a worm that has turned into a butterfly. 
And that's the process of the book of Romans. I call it the Romans Project. And that's exactly what it is, a project that God has for us. It's a renovation that takes place in us as we seek God's will through God's word. Sometimes you just think, wouldn't it be easy just to buy a new house instead of renovating the old one? (laughs) The only problem is this, God loves the old one. He loves you. And he doesn't want to discard you. But what he wants is a new you. And so he needs to renovate you. He needs to tear down some old stuff and put up some new stuff. And that's going to make you a new creature in every aspect of your life. And so this book is going to be very important to us this year. I just want to talk a little bit about the city of Rome to start. Now, it's not that important. We don't need to understand everything about about, uh, the city of Rome. But there's Italy. We know it's that shoe kind of boot-shaped country. But right in the middle there, you'll have Rome. Right on the the west side, right in the middle of that boot on the top, right by the the shin. (laughs) That's Rome right there. I tried to put a bigger Rome there. I couldn't get it working yesterday, so you'll just have to... I'll point there. How's that? Can you read that, Rome? If you you can, you got great eyes. Right there. That's Rome. (laughs) All right. And we know Rome, uh, you know, mostly because of the architecture. Uh, you know, we, we understand the Colosseum, and this is a picture of it. And of course, there was a floor over top of those hidden uh, passages underneath there. Many times they would keep animals under there, or they'd keep prisoners under there, so that when they were having the games, you would also have a lion jump out of a trap door, uh, you know, to make it exciting for the people. That was their form of entertainment as it chewed on somebody. And so the Colosseum is another picture of it. Uh, this is the Pantheon. This was uh, started to be built in about 27 BC. So that's a very old, old building and still standing today looking very straight. Uh, in fact, I read an article yesterday on what they did to make that happen. Now, there's no building today that anybody is going to build that after over 2,000 years is going to stand like that. And the reason, they, they couldn't figure out why. And in fact, they, they looked at the concrete and they started to see little chrysalids in there. And they thought that was there because of their poor uh, practices in mixing concrete. But what they actually found is those little chrysalids in there are a result of the process that they used to make their concrete because they heated it to such a high temperature that these little chrysalids formed within the concrete. And that concrete got so strong, and that's why it lasts over 2,000 years. And so now what they're doing this year, they're developing new methodologies as far as making concrete. Maybe Chris will have to take note of that. (laughs) He works with concrete. And um, they're making new methodology on how to actually mix concrete in a way where you can have concrete that'll last this long. And they learned that from the Romans. This is before Jesus came on the scene. They started building this. And so quite interesting when you look at the ingenuity of these people. You had great architecture that, that happened there. Of course, beauty as well. Like who wouldn't want to go on vacation there? Amen? And get yourself a little oceanside uh, room there. I know also everybody's going to be calling this week, yeah, what does it cost to go to Rome? <laughs> you know? <laughs> It would be wonderful. And here's a picture of what the uh, Colosseum would look like. And people would just flock into there 
for their entertainment and so forth, much like the theaters today, and they did have theaters as well on top of the Colosseum. We were actually able in, in Israel to be able to look and be, go into some of these theaters that they had built uh, for, for hundreds, you know, tens of thousands of people, and there'd be a person way down there, they'd whisper, and you'd be sitting on the top and you'd hear exactly what they say. It was just amazing. So we had some of our quartets go down there and they went and sang on the bottom while we all sat on the top tier of that, uh, of that theater and you could just, it just sounded so beautiful. No sound system required, you know? And so the ingenuity is just amazing. The proverb used to be, still is, people say it all the time, all roads lead to Rome, <laughs> you know? And that's because, uh, especially in the time of the Bible, Rome was really the epicenter of the world. Not just of the area, but of the world. It was the most important city within the whole entire empire. Um, everybody at some point would go to Rome, and most people you would meet, no matter where you would meet them, have gone there or are going there because it's so important. But Rome was an idolatrous city. Uh, they worshipped a plurality of gods. Even the emperors that ruled them, Nero and others, after they died, they would actually place a, a bust of them inside of the temple and they would call them a god. And they would pray to their former emperors. And so every emperor that died became a god in their eyes. So we call that pluralism, pluralism or polytheism where they believe more than one God. And that existed for centuries and centuries and centuries and in many places still exist today. But what happened when the Jews came on, because the Jews are not polytheistic, they're monotheistic. So that what they do really rubs in the face of Rome here. They're saying your gods are no good. Remember when the Apostle Paul went to Mars Hill and he began to preach there. And they had statues to all these gods and then they had one statue there, and the, and the plaque just said, the unknown God. <laughs> so Paul stood up, he says, I perceive that you are far too superstitious. But he says, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach to you this unknown God to you. And he started to preach to them about God that created them and, and made them of one blood out of every, uh, you know, and, and made every nation and the boundaries thereof and sent his son to die and rose from the grave and so forth. And he did have some impact there, but some people kind of mocked him and walked away. And others, uh, well, we'll think about this a little bit more. And others followed him, but very few. A little different than Pentecost when Peter preached and 3,000 people got saved and joined the church. I'd rather have a Pentecost than a Mars Hill. But the fact of the matter is we don't live in, a, in Jerusalem. We live in a Mars Hill. That's Airdrie, that's Calgary, this isn't the Jerusalem here. Now, I like it that there used to be a Bible belt. I say used to, but I can see the, the remnants of that all over the place with people I meet. You know, and it does make it somewhat easier to get a church started when there used to be a Bible belt because usually there's a remnant of people that have been touched by the scriptures that maybe they're, they're the older generation or whatever, and then they start seeing something that's biblical again, and then they flock towards that, and it starts kind of a movement once again. I'm praying that's what will happen here, amen? But not just for the older folks. I want younger people to catch 
the truth of the Word of God and find out why they don't need rock bands to get excited. Amen? You need the Scripture and truth. I remember when we first started, um, I was in Bible college, we were knocking on doors, and, and we were, I was talking to some of the, the religious leaders in the community, and it was just at the beginning when all this rock music started coming into the churches, and, and they were saying, yeah, we're losing our young people, so we're hoping that this will help get them in. And, and I told them straight to the face, I said, that's not going to work. I said, you're just destroying your church. And they said, well, we don't know what to do. I said, I know what you need to do. You need to get on fire for this again. <laughs> you know what young people, young people love the preaching of the word of God. They love it when it's on fire. They're excited about the scriptures. But you know, you gotta have a passion in your heart for the truth. But I'll tell you, just because you lost your passion and desire for the scriptures and desire for the things of God, putting in a rock band isn't gonna refire that up. That's just gonna give you a false fire for a while. And then it'll only happen when the band's playing. That's the worst problem, <laughs> you know. It's not right. And so <clears throat> there's idols today. There's idols all over the place. In First John, it taught, you know, his last words to the church was, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now these were the people that he just said, he that hath the son hath life. They had the doctrine settled. But he says, you know what? You can still slip into an idol worship in your life. And we live in that kind of society today. Many people make sports. What keeps you from the things of God? What keeps you from, from doing what God wants you to do? That's your idol. That's what you love more than God. Amen? Sometimes a person's television set becomes their idol. You know? It's no different than the polytheism of Rome. You know? Maybe there's more drastic measures in Rome. They had no problem with killing people and so forth. But I think we're slowly killing ourselves today. Then the church at Rome. <clears throat> this church was planted. It's an interesting church plant. It was planted remotely by people meeting Paul in other cities. So this wasn't the church that was started like the, a lot of the other churches where Paul would go in and he'd do some great miracles. and Everybody say, wow, that's great. And they'd, they'd get in touch with Paul. They'd go together and they'd get a church planted. In fact, Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote this letter to the Romans. But it's interesting because when you look at Romans chapter 16, it's got a list of names where he says, hey, greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so. He knew all these people that were there because these were people like all roads lead to Rome. They were in different cities as he was preaching. They got saved and they went back to Rome. So this church started up, but it wasn't started up on miracles and signs and wonders. It was started up by just simply born-again people getting together, getting on fire for the scriptures. And in fact, if you look at the book of Romans, it's a book of solid doctrine. It was probably the most mature church that it was alive that day. They could handle it. Of course, we know in that day that Nero was the emperor. He was quite a dude. <laughs> this man had no problem killing Christians. In fact, he set Rome on fire, the old part of the city, and then he blamed it on the Christians. So many of these people that went into that Colosseum and, and uh, were killed by gladiators or by lions or different animals or by being burnt or whatever 
were Christian people that they were blaming for. They are the problem in our community. <clears throat> now, that doesn't sound much different than we have today. We used to be a group of people that people would respect because we'd stand for something and we, we were the, the conscience of the nation. And by the way, we still are the conscience of the nation. It's just much of our conscience has been hardened and seared. When you think about that, this church here has to be the conscience for Airdrie and for Calgary. How, how, what kind of a conscience ought we to have? How ought we to walk with God? How close ought we to be with the Lord? What should we do or what should we not do? All I know is we as Christians ought to stop making excuses for the little sins that we like to do. And if we have problems with sin, I understand that because we all do, but at least let's be honest. <laughs> let's be honest and deal with it. Amen? So this church was a suffering church. It was persecuted. In fact, Nero would, would take Christians and, and dip them in wax and use them as candles in his garden. That's not like Calgary today or Airdrie. These Christians suffered. Paul himself would be martyred in Rome in prison by beheading. What did Paul ever do? <laughs> what problems did Paul make for the, the empire of Rome? You know, well, I'll tell you something. It just shows you over and over how that the devil is the prince of the power of, this air, this, of the air and the people walk according to the course of this world. He is the prince of that course. Because everything we are as a believer is against his course. So you wonder, well, why don't you just leave us alone? Why don't you just let us do what we want to do? Well, that's not how it works. <laughs> See, because we are working against the flow. You got saved and you were working with the flow, but then Christ saved you and he turned you around and says, now I want you to walk the opposite direction. Now people notice that. <laughs> you get in a group of 20 people walking one way, and you take one of those people, walk them the other way, everybody notices the one that walks this way, but they don't notice the 19 that go the other way. So as much as you want people to leave us alone as God's people, it'll never happen. Because <laughs> we're a conscience. We're a reminder of them of a God that is alive, of a truth that is sure, of a judgment that is coming. The Apostle Paul was writing to this church to establish a fellowship. He's always wanted to go there. He spoke about it many times. His heart was to be at Rome. And he knew that ultimately in his heart that God was going to bring him there. And God did bring him there in cuffs. <laughs> but what he wanted to do is he wanted to go to Rome and he wanted to establish a place that he could work out of because Spain, now Andrew's from Spain, if you go east of Italy, over the ocean, you'll find Spain there. West, west sorry, yeah, I keep mixing up east and west. West, and you'll hit Spain. And so what the Apostle Paul wanted to do is set up shop in, in the church at Rome, because here his sending church was Antioch. Now that's way north. That's north of Israel. That's beside the Mediterranean Sea. So he had to go a long way. <laughs> 
And so even Greece was a long way away from Israel. And so he was in Italy, which was even further. And now he wanted to launch out even further west to Spain. So he needed a place to fellowship, a place to be, a place to set up shop so he could run across and reach people. Now we, know from the, we don't know from the scriptures whether he actually got, ever got to Spain. Now tradition has said that he did, that he got released uh, from prison in Rome. And he was able to make one more missions trip. And then, of course, he was rearrested and killed in Rome. But in Romans 15, verse 24, it says this, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. So what that means is I want to come over to where you are so you can help build me and, and fill me with your company so that I can be ready to go do another work in Spain. So his heart's always about reaching further. Amen? So, some questions. Who wrote Romans? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote Romans. We know that. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel. There are also many personal facts that are given in chapter 15 that prove that Paul wrote this epistle as well. Uh, he was burdened with Rome. He knew deep down that he would find himself there one day. Rome, Romans 1.15, it says, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are, that are at Rome also. So his heart is to be there. So to whom was it written? Well, it was written to the Gentile believers at Rome. The Apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. You know that Peter was always looked at as the apostle to the Jews. And so his focus was toward the Gentiles, but that didn't mean he didn't preach the Jews. In fact, he had a very strong ministry to the Jews, and that was a part of his ministry as well. Um... And, and like I said, these Gentile believers were connected with Paul. So they already knew who he was. Many of them knew the Apostle Paul had met him. Uh, some of them were actually led to Christ by the Apostle Paul. And he was there and, and he wrote them his letter. Romans 1.13, it says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as, others, as among other Gentiles. So you'd have people like uh, Aquila and Priscilla. You remember them in the book of Acts. Uh, he met them in, in a different city, but you guess who he was talking to here in Romans 16, verse 3? Greet Priscilla and, Qu and Aquila, my helpers in G Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. And so he met them in other places, and now they went back to Rome, and they are a part of this, establishing this church here in Rome. Rufus. Rufus was, was many people believe, and I believe it's true, was the son of Simon of Cyrene. Remember the one that took the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and carried it for Jesus? His son Rufus became a great servant of God. In fact, he became a pastor, and he served God with his whole life. And so he had a good dad. He had a good uh, reputation. Amen? <laughs> and so Romans 16, verse 13, it says, Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So obviously Rufus 
had been in uh, Jerusalem and in that area and so forth, so he'd been around. There's Adronicus and Junia. Why wouldn't you name your son Adronicus? That's not a bad name. <laughs> yeah, right. Junia is not bad. Would you, would you name your daughter Junia? No? Is that you would? Madeline would. Okay. All right. <laughs> but Romans 16, verse 7, Salute Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners, who are a note among the apostles, who are also in Christ before me. And that means that they were saved before the apostle Paul was saved. So this church was not built by miracles, signs, and wonders of an apostle. It was built in a very special way by people that had traveled these roads that lead to Rome and away from Rome, and they were saved and they came back, and the Lord established something great within this great city. So when was it written? A.D. 55 to 58, and there's reasons to believe this. Paul wrote that he was to bring an offering from Corinth to Jerusalem. Now this happened during Paul's third missionary journey. You see that in Romans 15, 25. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. It was a big deal for the Apostle Paul to take an offering of money from a Gentile church to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Because there was a time where the Jews were the church. And when, when Peter went out to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel, he had a problem stepping across that thre- threshold. In fact, he says, you know, it's, it's illegal for me to actually come into your home. It's not lawful scripturally for me to be here, Cornelius. But the Lord showed me by the vision of the sheet coming down that what God has called clean called all not unclean. So now I'm coming in. And the Bible says he preached Jesus Christ to him. And it says, while he yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell upon him. We know that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. He was there when the Jews got saved in Pentecost. The first door was cracked open. He was there to verify and to uh, authorize the church at Samaria, where these were a half-breed between Jews and Gentiles. And he was there to unlock that door to them. And then in Acts chapter 10 and 11, we see Peter called once again to go into now the furthest reach, which was a Gentile's home, and to unlock the door to the Gentiles. And guess what? The next chapter took most of the chapter for Peter to go back to Jerusalem and tell them to say, hey, you know, I know you're not going to believe this. <laughs> Remember what God did with us and how the Holy Ghost came upon us? Same thing happened to Cornelius when I preached to him. See, it was a sign that God was working and bringing the, the, the Gentiles and the Samaritans into the church economy with the Jews. Because the Bible says that now there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Amen? It was a transitional time. That's the book of Acts. So folks, remember this. You're going to have people coming to you and they're going to read from the book of Acts and say, oh, you need to do this. Don't go too quickly on that. Within a transitional historical narrative, (laughs) there's all kinds of things are going to happen that will not be repeated. And what cults do is they pull some of these things out of there, say, let's repeat them. And if you don't repeat them, then you're not of us. Well, I'm sorry, the book of Acts is not written to be a doctrinal book, though you'll find doctrine in it. It's an historical narrative. 
It's telling you how God established the church, how he empowered it, how he formed it to the end. And guess what the first book is after the book of Acts? Romans. Now, was Romans the first book written? No. In fact, it was probably Paul's third. We know the book of James was the first New Testament book that was written. We know that 1st and 2nd Corinthians were written. Some people believe that Galatians might have been written before. Still a question mark on that one. Could have been right before Romans, right before, after Romans. But all we know is this, that on that journey that Paul wrote the book of Romans very early on, and the Lord, through the Holy Spirit of God, saw fit to put that third written book as the first epistle in the New Testament. After the book of Acts. After the church was formed, after it was uh, established. And then he says, here, take this book. You see, the book of Romans is important for the established church. It's full of doctrines and things that will help us to become the, the way the church wants us to be. So we're not going to go to the book of Acts for our doctrine. <laughs> we're going to learn from it, but we're going to go to the book of Romans. That's where we're going to get the New Testament doctrine for the church, you see. All right. You guys getting me here? All right. I know it's a little bit too factual, right? Preacher, why don't you spit a bit? I'll, I'll try spitting later. Amen. So anyways, from where was it written? Corinth. Now, we know that by Romans 16, verse number 1. This is what the Apostle Paul said. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sencria. So this place here was only about seven miles, and I'll pull up this slide here, it was the eastern harbor of Corinth on the Saronic Gulf, about seven miles east of that city. So here Paul is commending someone from Corinth to Rome. Because they were going there. Because all these roads lead to, war, to Rome. Amen? So let me just say something a little off topic here. Commending people to churches is important. It's important. That's why we've made it a very strong part of our church accepting members. You need to be commended. Amen? Say, well, I don't have any church. Well, then, then we know where you are. <laughs> then let's go from there. But folks, I'll tell you something. The Apostle Paul gave this, this woman a very good commendation. And so when I have somebody come from me, like even uh, Loretta and her family, Emmanuel, and the folks from Nigeria, all the way from Nigeria, I said, can you get a letter of commendation? <laughs> so we had to communicate with Nigeria to get a letter. And I think it was the day before finally we got the letter. We had already got them scheduled to come in. <laughs> so, well, hopefully this is on time. And sure enough, he sent the letter and commending them. And he was saying, this is the kind of people they are. They've been such a blessing. Commending them. So the, the authority or the leader of the church was commending this church member to the church at Rome. Say, she's okay. You can take her. She'll be a blessing to you. When anybody ever comes from another church, I'll talk to that pastor. And that pastor, I'll say, yeah, they're a real blessing. <laughs> or I'll say, oh, <laughs> they're a real cursing, <laughs> you know. Hopefully a blessing, amen. 
And so I just want to just wanted to point that out to you that that is important. That is important. Commendations are important. It's scriptural. So when we do that as a member membership, and I re- read that letter to you, that's scriptural. You need to know that where this person came from, they weren't causing problems. You're not getting somebody in your church that's going to start manipulating and spewing doctrine around and so forth, uh, drawing away disciples after themselves. And folks, I'm concerned sometimes for people that have not been taught these kind of things because they're easily drawn aside. They're easily, someone comes to them, they say, oh, we can do whatever we want in the church. No, you can't. The Bible says, mark those that cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Now that's not popular. Oh, that preacher told them to avoid them. Yeah, I will. There are people I will tell you to avoid. By the way, if people are leaving this church and they're going somewhere else and they're not leaving the right way, what in the world are you doing fellowshipping with them? You know right off the bat there's something wrong. You're playing with fire. Amen? Commendation is important. Commendation is important. If a person needs to leave to go to another church, there's a right way to do that. There's a way to have the preacher behind you in doing that. (laughs) But we live in such a rebellious society. We don't care what the preacher says. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Apostle Paul has proven to us right here commendations are scriptural. Amen? I just want to get that across. So the next time we're having a membership and we're uh, reading a letter, what are they doing that for? Right there. Romans 16.1. All right? And so, so now this is important. We'll leave with this. What was written? What was written? And I'm just going to give you a breakdown of the book of Romans. Number one, foundational doctrine for sinners. Chapters 1 to 8. So important we're going to have doctrine of salvation, chapters 1 to 5.11. And I'll read to you a passage here in Romans 3.21. For now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You've heard that one before. Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. say, wow, that's a lot of verbiage there, (laughs) you know. Can I tell you that verse that I just read here, this passage, would blow out of the water every cult that exists today if they would know what this means. Any works-based salvation would be totally decimated if you would believe what this passage just said. That is doctrine, my friend. (laughs) What we have here is doctrines of redemption, That means to let go free for a ransom. We have the doctrine of propitiation. Therefore, it means a a place of conciliation or expiation. That means he became the one to take the heat for us. That's propitiation. The same word 
For propitiation is the same word in, in the, uh, that they use in the, in the Greek for the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So that mercy seat is the propitiation. It takes it. What's underneath the, the mercy seat? The law. You want to get to heaven by the law? Take off the mercy seat. Now you get to heaven by the law. That's how you have to face God. That means every jot and tittle of that law you have to keep perfectly or you're going to hell. Well, before you took your first breath, you already failed. Because in Adam, all die, <laughs> right? So the Lord very conveniently and, and mercifully and lovingly put the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. That is our propitiation. And once a year, they'd take the blood of the lamb and they'd sprinkle it on that mercy seat because it's through the faith in his blood that we can now approach the throne room of God. Not through the law. The law was kept in Christ as the picture of the ark. <laughs> he kept it. We go through the blood. <sighs> Amen. But if you want to meet God without the propitiation, you feel free. But when you meet him, he won't be very happy with you. In fact, you're not going to meet him the way you want to meet him. Only those that believe in Christ are saved. Amen. He's a propitiation. The word justification means to recognize, to set forth as righteous, to declare righteous, to justify as a judicial act. So it's like a judge standing, sitting at his uh, station there with his gavel in his hand, and he hits it down and says, righteous. Guess what? It had nothing to do with the person sitting on the other side. It had everything to do with the, de the decision of the judge. So God justifies you based on your faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Declares you righteous. So it's too bad if you're trying to get to heaven by you doing righteous things. <laughs> Sorry. The judge will look at you and say, no. But then, if you were sitting there as a, as a lawbreaker, and then the Lord Jesus Christ would come and stand in between you and God, and then God would see only his son, he would have no choice but to take his gavel and say, righteous! Amen. And that's what you are when you're born again. He doesn't see you anymore. He sees his son. He doesn't see someone that used to sin and now they're doing better oh they used to be bad but now they're doing pretty good you know what he sees he sees someone that has never sinned because it's christ's record that has been imputed to you and that's another doctrine imputation to be accounted to reckon it's an accounting term to put it on your account amen that's in the book of romans <laughs> That's salvation doctrine. Then we learn about adoption. Because of this salvation, we are now placed as a son in the family of God through adoption. A missionary heard a message given on just the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans, and this is what the missionary was quoted as saying, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That was John Wesley. And John Wesley started a great revival across England. It started with the book of Romans. <laughs> and the doctrinal truth that caused his heart to warm and give assurance that, you know what, I am saved. I am saved. Amen? There's also sanctification. Come on now. Here we go. Warren Rearsby, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. And he called it, Be Right. Be Right. So this is my thought here today, going through the book of Romans. I'm glad we're saved. And I'm glad that if you've been born again, I'm glad you're born again. Praise God, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for myself that I'm saved. But can I tell you something? The Christian life, the journey of the Christian life is beyond salvation. See, Warren Wearsby saw that as he did this commentary on, on Romans. He said, it's not just about being saved. It's about being right. To be right with your salvation, you have to have his righteousness imputed to you. But then as God's child, as God works in your heart, you need to take his righteousness that's been imputed in you and let it flow through you. See, you need to be transformed. That's the message. That's the Roman project. That's what God wants to do in us. Amen? So it's not just good enough for you to be saved and come to church and say, hey, I'm going to live the way I want because I'm saved anyways. <laughs> shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall I, that, are, that is dead to sin, live any longer therein? See, that dead to sin, that's a, that's a doctrine that we'll learn about in the book of Romans. Dead to sin. <laughs> we don't continue on in sin because we're saved. The grace that gave you the power to be saved is the same grace that's going to give you the power to be the Christian that God wants you to be. And I'm sorry, if you're going to laugh in the face of the grace to live right, then I wonder if you've already laughed in the face of the grace to be saved. It's the same grace. Because he's not, he's not just interested in saving you, he's interested in making you like his son. He wants you involved in the whole journey. <laughs> Amen. And I think we're living in a day today with Christianity that we make a big deal about salvation, which we should, but that's where the period is. Anything after that, we've turned the word grace into this kind of a license. Just because we're living in grace, we do what we want. <laughs> no. Grace is a fulfillment of the law. When you got saved, grace made you right with God, and now you stand righteous before Him. When you are saved, that same grace that made you right before God is going to make you right in your life. <sighs> Say, well, a lot of people talk about tithing. They talk about, oh yeah, tithing was a law. We live in an age of grace. Okay, if you want to go that way, 
Grace always brings you a step further than the law. I want to go back to the law. <laughs> go back to the 10th. You understand that? Jesus perfectly illustrated when he says, if they, if they compel thee to go a mile, go with them twain. The law said, carry the pack for a mile. Grace said, go two miles. Grace isn't a license to sin and do what you want. Grace is to be something that you've never been before. A Christian that's right with God. That is in the will of God. That can think right, talk right, do right, love right, serve right. That's because of grace. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us to deny ungodliness. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. Warren Wearsby said, the epistle of Romans was not written for wool gatherers or religious sightseers. You will have to think as you study this letter, but the rewards will be worth your efforts. If you understand Romans, you'll have the key to understanding the rest of the Bible. Better still, you will have the secret of successful Christian living. John Bunyan, you've heard of him, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. He was converted by studying the book of Romans. And from that journey that he got through Romans, he began to pen, and he was not a poet, he was not a scholar, he was not an intellect, but he began to pen the book The Pilgrim's Progress that showed us a journey of a young man named Christian from a dark place to the celestial city. Now along that path was a cross. Right early on, right when he got into the wicked gate, there was a cross there. And when he found that cross, the heavy burden that was, he was carrying, he said, I can't make it, I can't make it. But he went up to the cross. And as he stared at the cross, the burden fell off of his back and rolled down the hill. And he said, oh, I'm free. But that was the beginning of the journey. It wasn't the end. See, he understood that. The, Pilgr the book of Pilgrim's Progress, it teaches you that. When you, when you read it, and you, you've got to think as you read it, but it tells you how you, you lose your burden at the cross, but then after that, there's so many things that you have to do, so many paths you need to walk, so, so many dangers you have to face, but that is the Christian life. Do you understand that? It's time to evaluate our lives and ask ourselves, truly, am I just simply living to be saved? Or am I living because I want to take that salvation and I want it to work through my life and I want to continue this journey for God until I reach that celestial city? And we know because of that, it strung a chord in his, I think it was a friend's life, What's her name again? Now her name slips me. The second part. Christina, is it? I think so. And because Christian had made this journey, she said, I'm going to make this journey too. I'm going to tell you something. Nobody's going to be helped 
just by you being saved. The only way people are going to be helped is if you're an example of the journey. If you're along on that journey, this life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and vanishes away. We got so little time to make this journey. Why don't we start? Let's start this journey. I encourage you to get the book of Pilgrim's Progress. If you want it, I'll get it for you. First book I ever read. I tell you, powerful. Powerful. The second part of the book we'll look at is this Dispensational Truth for Israel, chapters 9 to 11. And then finally, chapters 12 to 16 will be the duty to serve for believers. It's not just salvation. The end of the book is about serving. It's about the church. Do you understand that God doesn't want you as a lone ranger? God wants you to part of his physical, visible body on earth to flesh out what he wants people to see. And you know why he wants you in a body? So you don't take the credit. Only as a church, as we work together as one body, do we forget our names. It's not about so-and-so did this. It's not about that person did that. It's about Airdrie Baptist Church did this. The body of Christ did this. That's why we take our offerings and we put it into one pile. <laughs> That's why when we support missionaries, we put it into one missions account. Because when we give that money to the missionary, it's not about, oh, this person wanted you to have this. No, no. The body of Christ is behind you. No glory for the individual. <laughs> I would say, until you're ready to lose your name, you're not ready for a local church. If you've got to be on top, you've got to be the hero, you're not going to do well here. And I'm sorry, many times we lose people because of that. Well, you understand, I have got education. You should use me here. This isn't about you. That's why any member of God's body, as we serve together, are willing to pick up the toilet brush. Whether you're the pastor, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, because it's about the body serving. Amen? That's what we want to do. That's what the book of Romans will bring us to. To use our gifts so that God can glorify himself through this church. Amen. Let's bow our heads.